All right, happy Groundhog Day. Welcome to episode number 53 of the Canadian Prepper Podcast. We're recording on February 2nd, 2020. Uh, this episode is sponsored by the Canadian Preppers Pet uh, Network. Check them out at uh, canadianpreppersnetwork.com. Uh, my name is Eric. I'm the host of the show. I'm based in southern Ontario. I'm a hunter, target shooter, ham radio operator, VE3 EPN, and computer geek. Uh, I got into preparedness when I was working frontline emergency services and witnessed an over-reliance on emergency services during major events such as ice storms, power outages, etc. I started a small preparedness company to help people get prepared and better look after themselves for at least 72 hours, if not longer. My name is Ian, and I live on Vancouver Island. I'm an outdoor enthusiast, sports shooter, reloader, and my farm's designated handyman. I'm Joe Alton, MD. I'm the fellow of the, both the American College of uh, Surgeons and the American College of OBGYN, founder of the survival medicine website, doomandbloom.net. We have over 1,200 articles, podcasts, and videos on medical preparedness. I'm also the author of books like the, uh, well, let's see what we got here, the Survival Medicine Handbook, the book Alton's Antibiotics and Infectious Disease, about five other books besides besides those. You might know me also as the first physician to write about fish antibiotics in times of trouble in survival settings, and uh, I talk about that in our, our book, uh, Alton's Antibiotics and Infectious Disease, uh, as well as some other some of our other books. And of course, you can always see all of our articles, videos, and podcasts absolutely free at doomandbloom.net. Uh, I'm Alan. My friends and family call me a safety nerd. My background as a medical first responder has focused my eyes, uh, my mind towards safety above all else. I teach first aid, coach my family and friends to be better prepared. I'm a locksmith by trade. I've worked in the physical security industry for more than 20 years now, and I am an unabashed fan of uh, Dr. Alton here. And the the survival medicine handbook is something I've read cover to cover more times than I can count. Thank you. I'm honored. And hello from Canada's East Coast. My name is Hughes from Nova Scotia, and I'm a Canadian Armed Forces veteran, a volunteer firefighter and station chief, and a volunteer search and rescue technician and prepper. Um, I've been preaching and living the prepper lifestyle to varying degrees for the last six years or so, and this was born out of necessity to ensure the short-term survival of my family, which includes three young children. Hey, if you want to help support the show and keep the Canadian Prepper podcast on the air, you can buy a Canadian Prepper podcast t-shirt at prepperpodcast.ca. All the proceeds uh, help keep the lights on and the backup generator fueled. Well, if you're enjoying the show, please take a few minutes and like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash Canadian Prepper Podcast and submit a review on iTunes. Also, if we want your feedback, good or bad. Even if there's a topic you want us to cover, please let us know. All right, so we've got some uh, medically sound content for you in this episode. Uh, we're going to start off with some news. We're going to let you know how we've improved our preparedness since our last episode. And we're going to get into the main topic of the episode, a discussion on the coronavirus. Let's move into some news. A um, couple of articles I found. Uh, one, I didn't link an article to it, uh, just more of a, an honorable mention. Uh, this past Tuesday was Let's Talk Day to raise awareness for mental health issues. Uh, there's no reason not to talk about every type of health, including your own mental health. There are a lot of great organizations out there that will help. Um, for first responders out there, uh, I've Got Your Back 911 and Boots on the Ground are two organizations in Canada that are always around to talk. Um, if you are a first responder, reach out to your EAP, your employee assistance plan, talk to your doctor or friend, or if necessary, please call 911, but don't hesitate to ask if the help, if you do need help. Um, another quick article from the, C the Center for D Disease Control 
and the spread risk of being in contact by droplet spread uh, and physical contact, such as shaking hands, uh, touching contaminated surfaces, then touching your uh, uh, mouth, eyes, or nose. Um, so that was another uh, article that I linked to in there. Uh, it says there can also be transferred by fecal matter, although it is rare. So I guess we're over to elbow bumps instead of fist bumps now. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Waving from a distance. Yes. That could be it too. <laughs> Hughes, you got a news article? Oh, oh, we lost Hughes. Oh, we lost Hughes. Right. He was talking about a possible power run which is going to happen, so I'm sure he'll be back. Uh, so I've got an article here in regards to uh, Stormageddon uh, in uh, Newfoundland. Uh, Newfoundland Labrador's emergency planning uh, shows that there's actually a, a serious hole. So uh, Newfoundland Labrador spends uh, less on preparing for emergencies than any other province in the Atlantic Canada uh, and the uh, Provincial Emergency Services budget uh, quietly dropping at uh, nearly a third over the last decade. So just some uh, interesting information that's coming out of that big snowstorm there. For a, uh, for a province that is isolated, uh, prone to bad weather, and lacking in a lot of resources, that uh, that seems kind of counterintuitive. It does. Uh, yeah. Well, well, do we have a sponsor? We do have a sponsor. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> So what we've done lately for preps is brought to you by Super SE Straps. Uh, they're pretty. They're a pretty cool company. They uh, um, they're based in the U.S. Uh, veteran-owned. Everything is handmade to order. Uh, you can check them out at superscstraps.com. They've got all kinds of really cool stuff. I've got an order coming. Uh, it did not arrive in time to uh, to review it here tonight, but um, hopefully for the next episode we will have um, stuff here. But they've got all kinds of really cool. Um, Paracord gear and um, like really practical handkerchiefs. I ordered the the one that I ordered is actually a um, lined and it can be used as a Faraday box, which is pretty oh, cool. cool. Uh, they've got some pretty cool morale patch kit or uh, yeah morale patch kits. So they're about the same size as standard morale patch, but they're a little pocket and, and a pouch, and you, they put stuff in it. Um, they've got some really cool stuff there. So we're uh, looking forward to begin to receiving that order, and we'll review some gear some gear from that from them in upcoming episodes. Yeah. So for myself, uh, what I've done lately since the last show is I went through and fixed up our water filtration system. So once a year, I swap out all the uh, the filters, I swap out the uh, UV light, and I just make sure everything's operating correctly and as it should be. Uh, as I mentioned in all the other episodes, uh, we are on a, a well and septic setup here. So uh, making sure the water system is uh, maintained and working properly is obviously quite important. So uh, I always make sure to at least do that yearly, check the filters every six months, but uh, do a full clean out and swap uh, swap around of everything every year. So that was done. I had to cut out some section of the pipe and uh, and reconnect some because I found a leak along the way. So it was, uh, it was well, uh, well worth it because if not, it could have gotten a lot worse. So. Cool. Uh, as for myself, I had a little uh, confab with the uh, the mutual assistance group that I have uh, arranged, and so we agreed that you know we won't break out the flamethrowers and the uh, the zombies uh, uh, just yet. So we had called, decided to call the DEFCON four just a heightened alertness more than anything else. So we did a hard self evaluation of what we're missing for critical shortage shortages, and we went off and fixed that. So we went to uh, Costco and a couple other places. Then we went on a gas run to uh, top off our supplies. Uh, let's see here, got some animal feed, dog food, and some shelf stable items. Uh, we had about two feet of rain in the last week. So, uh, even if I've been gone for a couple weeks, came back day one, we had to dig out some dishes that were like filled with leaves and branches that got basically hit by a flash flood. And so that took up a good part of the, the day 
Okay, and then, uh, yeah, basically just picked up some more free brass at the range, and I'm just dealing with that, and that's pretty much it. But I've only been home for about maybe 36 hours now. <laughs> Sleep so. is for the week. <laughs> yep, that's right. <laughs> uh, I unfortunately had a fairly busy week with uh, with family emergencies, so I didn't get much else done. Um, but there's uh, there's lots on the horizon, and we'll talk more about it next week, I'm sure. Awesome. So with that, we will move into uh, the main topic of the show, and uh, we will let uh, Dr. Alton uh, take it from here. Well, I think everybody knows that there is an epidemic going on in China, mostly in mainland China, but also beginning to sporadically have uh, travelers returning from there, uh, coming down with a, a particular virus. The funny thing is that, of course, we're in the middle of flu season, and this is probably one of the few times that I'm here in January or February asked to go on a, onto a podcast to talk about viruses and not talk about the flu, but indeed, indeed what we have is not the flu, another respiratory viral infection called the coronavirus. The coronavirus is actually, has been nicknamed a number of things, the Wuhan virus after the city uh, of 11 million. 11 million, by the way, is the seventh largest city in China. So that's pretty big place. And so it's been called the Wuhan virus. Uh, it is actually officially known as 2019-small uh, n, C, uh, ca uh, capital C, small o, capital V for uh, novel coronavirus and cove. Uh, so that that is what is going on right now. Now, the amazing thing about this virus is it's, 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 it's transmissibility. And I cannot even keep up. I mean, you could see here in some of my notes of numbers that I've had to reach. I've, I've had to just today redo them several different times. And we are now at 17,387 cases uh, of uh, 2019 NCOV. Uh, 16,800 of them are in China. There have been 362 deaths. And the funny thing about it is they... Of those 17,387 people, only 472 are considered to have recovered, which means that they believe that there are some longer-term effects, and they're watching these people, and they're not willing to say that these 17, the rest of these 17,000 people are recovered. So uh, it's, it's pretty amazing. It's, the death toll has... Uh, gone up by dribs and drabs. Thank goodness for that. It's about a 2% death toll. Now, one thing that you do need to know, though, is that the Spanish flu epidemic of, 2000, of uh, 1918 1919, well, that had a 2% death rate as well. And so it happened, that particular uh, virus happened to infect a third of the world's population, which was about 2 billion at that time. So there were about 50 to 100 million deaths. And hopefully we'll have, we know a lot more about medicine and containment, infection control, and hopefully we'll get this a little bit more under control. There are 27 other countries that have uh, people who most, almost all of them who have traveled from China. There are a couple, uh, or there's, I know one in Chicago at the very least, that is home, sort of a homegrown infection. A lady who visited Wuhan, sixty-year-old lady, came in, and uh, well, she, you know, was uh, her. She went home to her husband, and sure enough, he got it as well. Uh, 
both of them seem to be okay. There have been very few deaths, only one death as far as I know outside of China that is in the Philippines that happened today. So one of the many things, many new things that happened today with regards to this virus. Now, U.S. officials uh, confirm a ninth case of the coronavirus in the United States. I think there are only two or three cases in Canada, and they are widely spread apart, one in Ontario, one in Vancouver. Uh, and the uh, amazing thing is that we are partially ready for this. We're not, we can never be completely ready. I spoke to a virologist recently, and he feels that the United States has 200 percent less hospital beds for contagious disease than it needs and 400 percent less intensive care unit beds than it would need for a significant outbreak of infectious disease. So as prepared as we are compared to many other countries, including China, uh, we indeed still have a long way to go. We have learned some lessons since uh, the Ebola epidemic in 2014, in 2014, uh, a man from Liberia had the disease, showed up in Texas and wound up infecting two nurses. And that interestingly enough, I wanted to talk just a minute about um, transmissibility and the RO number. Okay, the RO number or the R naught number is actually how it's uh, pronounced. It's what we refer to as a basic reproduction number. And what that is, is if you took somebody with a disease, an infectious disease, and you put them in a community that was completely free of disease and not, not ever uh, exposed to it, how many people would that person with the infectious disease uh, infect as well? And Ebola was only about two people, about two for every one person there were about two people. And so for that reason, there you had a, over the course of time, a, an epidemic that spread. If that number is one or less, the likelihood of an epidemic is much less because you're not really replacing the people as they uh, get better or die of the infection. This disease is about a four and three to four, I would say. And so as a result, it is more transmissible than a lot of other infectious diseases. Now, interesting, interestingly enough, there are diseases that are a lot worse than that in terms of transmissibility, which is pretty amazing since every 24 hours we're getting 2,500 more cases of coronavirus, uh, in, at least mostly in, mostly in mainland China. But measles, for every infected person with measles, that goes into a community that is generally free of measles, that person infects 18 people. Wow. Your wow. chances your chances of getting infected by somebody with measles who's in the same room with you for more than an hour is 90% if you have, wow. not, had, if you have not had measles. So there are diseases that are certainly much more transmissible, and there are diseases that are certainly much higher in fatality rate, the Ebola uh, epidemic in 2014, it had about a 45% death rate. And so that's pretty, pretty terrible with regards to that, but it was less, less infective. Um, I want to talk a little bit about how we identify a pandemic from an epidemic, from, uh, from just a disease that happens to be around. There's a, 
there's diseases that are endemic. An endemic disease is a disease that always is always around in a particular area. So uh, an endemic disease would be malaria. Malaria is a common endemic disease. Basically, it is around all year round, and it is in, for example, the tropics. Malaria would be an example. For an epidemic, we'll have to talk a little bit about that. Before we get to an epidemic, we have the phases that go from uh, infectious disease all the way to epidemic, all the way to a pandemic. And that, that is something that occurs through the World Health Organization through a series of phase alerts that tell you what is going to happen. So a phase one alert is basically a, a virus that circulates, for example, in animals. Let's say hoof and mouth disease. A hoof and mouth disease may kill all your cows, but it's not going to kill a member of your family. A phase two disease is something that has now gone from an animal to a human, but but very rare. And, and that would be like avian flu. The bird flu, yeah, the people that wound up getting the bird flu in general were people that were poultry workers in, in Asia. And so that's, that's two. Phase three, you start having clusters here and there of people of, uh, in different areas that, of people that have the disease, but not community-wide infections. Now, what we, what we have with the current coronavirus is a phase four. And that means that you have community-wide outbreaks, multiple areas in a particular region, and usually within a particular country. In this case, that country is China with sporadic events that occur elsewhere, but mostly because of travel, somebody returning from, from travel to China. And then you have five, that was, let's say Ebola would be an excellent example of that, where there was a community widespread in different countries, but in the same region. And if you remember Ebola, West Africa, Ivory Coast, Sierra Leone, uh, these places uh, were different countries, but in the same region, that's a level five. And then when you finally hit phase six, you've got a pa an actual pandemic, community level outbreaks in different countries, different regions, and that's the deal. So if uh, in China, you have a lot of these community-wide outbreaks, and then you have a community-wide outbreak in Paris. You have a community outbreak in New York City or in Chicago. Well, you've got a real pandemic. So that that is a big problem. Now, I wanted to just talk for a second why a the coronavirus is so prone to mutate. Things Viruses mutate. I, I think everybody knows that. That is not an uncommon thing for a virus to do. Well, uh, what I could say is that you've got a very special kind of virus right now. Uh, it is uh, the virus that we have is called coronavirus uh, 2019 NCOV, and that is just a member of the coronavirus or coronaviridae family. That includes things like SARS, which I think a lot of people have heard of. MERS is Middle East Respiratory Syndrome. These are related to the current uh, epidemic that we're dealing with right now. And these have just popped up since the early 2000s. And so there are a total of seven, seven strains of which most of them we never heard of until 
that the early 2000s, SARS, for example, uh, sudden acute respiratory syndrome, that was 2003, and MERS, I think, was a little bit later than that. Uh, and why is that happening? The reason why that happening is because these are RNA viruses. RNA is different than DNA. Basically, we have DNA and we have RNA, but uh, these viruses, these coronaviruses, only have RNA, and they that's ribonucleic acid. And they have, these RNA viruses, a much higher mutation rate compared to DNA viruses. And that leaves the possibility of genetic errors occurring more frequently. When I say errors or genetic mistakes, I mean as a virus reproduces, it can produce imperfect copies of itself in the form of mutations. mutations. And it does it much more often than a regular virus would would do that. So the interesting thing is in most cases when it mutates, not much happens. It was not a, a mutation that changed it a lot. Sometimes it even hinders the virus, the mutation, but sometimes it can turn the virus into a super virus that makes it more transmissible, that makes it uh, multiply faster, that makes it harder to kill. So that means that each person who becomes a host has the potential to become patient zero for a new improved virus. That is a big, big issue. So uh, SARS, uh, let's see, I think that was about 8,000 cases over six months, 800 deaths there, and uh, Middle East Respiratory Syndrome, that one only had left, uh, maybe three or 4,000 cases, but it had about a 40% death rate, so it was pretty bad. And, of course, what we have is the 2% that we have uh, here with the cor coronavirus right now. So how does uh, coronavirus spread? Is this, uh, have, have I g actually given you a, a moment to actually inhale, you guys? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if I, I have. I do. <laughs> <laughs> well, I just wanted to want you guys to know that the coronavirus spreads through close contact with other people. Basically, usually as a result of coughing or sneezing on everyone or anyone who is within a range of, let's say, about three to six feet from that person. That's what we consider to be close contact. And... If an one thing that's important to know is that there's so many different ways that droplets filled with virus can actually get on you. They can get on your shirt if somebody sneezes on you and go a, a drop can go in your eye. Uh, the eye is actually sort of interesting and people wonder well, why, why did I get sick? I was wearing a mask the entire time. Well, it, there may be aerosolized droplets with virus in it that actually touch your eye. Once it touches your eye, the cleansing and the draining, the natural way that you, you sort of cleanse your eye is through your tear duct. And so a virus goes from the surface of your eye down into your tear duct. And where do you think that goes? It goes right into your nasal airways. And it goes from your nasal airways into your, nasal, into your oropharynx. And basically, you are now a host. And that's uh, pretty crazy. I mean, because it's unclear. The worst thing about this is unclear how long the particles of this new coronavirus actually can live on areas like work counters. 
surface areas, on your shoes, on your clothes. And the, que and, and the amazing thing is, is that for a disease that has a 2 to 14 day incubation period, that's the time between when the virus goes into your body and you start to exhibit symptoms, you are actually probably going to be contagious for those 2 to 14 days before you even knew that you were sick. And that's what makes it so dangerous and so highly transmissible is that most of the people that went to another, came from Wuhan, came from Wuhan generally healthy and doing fine and got sick several days afterwards, after they actually got home to their home country. So this is a something to be concerned about, something to pay attention to, and we'll, ha and we'll talk, I'll, I'll let you guys talk, but... Uh, we have some ways that I think that might be simple preventative measures that will help a lot. So with, with other coronaviruses, what was the, um, what's the proper term for that? Kind of the half-life of how long that virus could live outside a host? Uh, they could live outside a host probably. It depends on how moist the surface was, but uh, let's say if it was a kitchen counter, just a few hours. Okay. But we think, uh, they, we think that's different with this, this one. Right. And what's, what are the, obviously you just said moisture is, is one of the contributing factors. Uh, is the type of surface that it's on also a contributing factor? So a harder surface yes. versus a fabric if, surface? Well, if the surface, it, it, if the surface is your eye, obviously it's going to live longer and be more successful than if it's a, a work camera. If fabric surfaces are notorious for being repositories for in, uh, infectious particles. And so that's why if you read my uh, article or, or chapters in my book on how to put together an effective survival sick room for epidemics, that I always tell you to be minimalist in your furnishings and absolutely no carpet, absolutely no fabric uh, covered uh, furniture, and if you do that, then your chances of being able to dis disinfect the area on a regular basis is much better. Okay. Um, and that, so that would also theoretically apply to decontaminating someone before they're coming into your, your living space too, right? So obviously you'd want to quarantine if you can, but um, decon, you're looking for, the, looking for the porous surfaces and trying to keep those outside of your outside of your safe zone is that right yes yeah, so you want to quarantine people as much as you can but you have to remember the quarantine is not 100 percent effective as a matter of fact when they announced the quarantine in wuhan china where the outbreak began more than five million people that happened to be in there it was remember close to lunar new year chinese uh, new year uh there were like 40 million people in the city and five million of them, they were supposed to be staying there because they were quarantined. But five million of them actually got out, and each one of them, each one of them, could have been a reason why another community wound up uh, uh, having an outbreak there. And and Dr. Joe, sorry, I, I dropped off for um, a minute, but do we know what the R naught value of this of this uh, virus? Yes, is? three three to four. It's three to four, uh, very similar to SARS, to MERS, uh, and uh, it is more than Ebola, less than Zika, much less than measles, uh, but, uh, uh, but 
remember that the rate of contagion does not mean the rate of fatality. The fatal mortality rate or the fatality rate is much different. So Ebola, not quite as infective, although it was in indeed infective enough to be have an outbreak that would gr grew for a while, uh, but highly fatal. And uh, But there are simp simple things, even just hydrating the person. Once they were able to get, interestingly enough, some IV fluids down to the people in West Africa in quantities that made a difference, it, the death rate, which was 60%, went down to 42, 44, 45%. The so other in, in thinking about how bad this pandemic could be, looking at the R0, which is, you know, mm -hmm. the typical seasonal flu is what, like 1.2, 1.4, I think. Yeah. Um, so the R0 for this is much higher, but the fatality rate so far at 2% is roughly in line with the seasonal flu, isn't it? No. No. The, the okay. seasonal flu is probably zero. The, uh, 0. 0.0 oh something. It, oh, okay. I thought it was a lot higher than that. It's, okay. low. no, it, it's lower. It's significantly lower. And the well, I mentioned something earlier uh, about the way viruses change. And if a virus doesn't change much over the course of a year, then your vaccines are going to be more effective and your your the population has been exposed to something so similar that in general there's more immunity. If a virus uh, changes a lot, mutates a lot, and becomes a different strain, where the previous year's virus is much less effective. I've mentioned some years were where the virus was about 19% effective in preventing the flu, 29% uh, effective in another year. Well, it, what happens then is that you're just not ready for that virus and you just have not been exposed to anything like it before and that's when you have things like the spanish flu epidemic and you have swat the swine flu epidemic hong kong flu in the 50s there, there's, a whole, there's a whole series of different antigenic shifts not drifts but shifts that human beings were not ready for you know and when you're not exposed when you're not immune or naturally immune or have had exposure to a virus, there's a problem. And, and you know, in some areas of Canada, you know, 80 to 90% of the native population was wiped out by Europeans, not even, not because they necessarily had ill intentions, but they simply had smallpox. Wow. Okay. Thank you. Actually, I got a quick question for the Dr. Alton. If, uh, with the pig run on N95 masks worldwide, um, a, what's your opinion on how effective they are? But also, is it more about uh, containing the spread if somebody's already sick, or is it actually going to be any good whatsoever, like actually preventing from ingesting the droplets, so to speak, as well as a couple of goggles, I guess? You know, a lot of people may think that's not, you know, that, that it's sort of a no-brainer that uh, the N95 mask would be protective. But one thing I want you to know is that the N95, oh, by the way, let me, let me just say first what an N95 mask is. An N95 mask is N stands for non-oil resistant. Uh, it is used for biological protection, uh, whereas there is uh, R, which is oil resistant, and P masks. And uh, those are mostly used in agricultural and industrial situations, you know, painting houses and things like that. Um, the 95 part of it says that it will, that mask will 
stop particulates that are more than 0.3 microns in size, 95%. Now, this is a human hair that I have just cut in cross-section. You see that, right? Yep. yep. Okay. Hold on one second. Yep. Okay. Or I actually did this in a, in a previous show. I want you to look closer. Do you see a dot there? Yep. Yes, we do. Yep. That's a micron. <laughs> so that zero, that mask actually can protect you from things that are 0 0.3 the size of that dot. Now, the thing is, is that the coronavirus family, all the viruses are smaller than 0 0.3 microns. Good. So you would think that it wouldn't be effective. And for a long period of time, I thought that too, until I dug up some studies that were done on uh, a coronavirus called Middle East Respiratory Syndrome. Uh, there were studies done in Saudi Arabia, and they did studies on medical workers who worked with people that had MERS, M-E-R-S, the Middle East Respiratory Syndrome. And they found that there was a significant protective effect for wearing an N95 mask, even though it doesn't guarantee the uh, blockage of that of those particulates. And so that's how I, I, that I actually have, although logically you would think that these particles should be able to get through, there is actually a, a hard, there's hard scientific evidence that is protective to some effect. It also depends on how well the seal is around the sides of the mask as well and how well it fits. So glad, I'm so glad you asked. <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, I have a number of different masks. Oh, now I have this thing on. Um, well, hold on one second. Oh, let me have one of them. Let me have one of those. I'm having... Uh, I'm having my em employer. I'm having my employer help me. Employer. Hi, everybody. Star Amy. Uh oh. You know what? I have others over here. I have one over here somewhere. Yes. I, I did hear that one of the reasons why they find N95s to be effective is because it, it prevents you from touching your face. Yes. So that's what I heard that it's not necessarily, it won't necessarily stop the virus from being ingested through the mask, but it stops you from touching your mouth and your face, and that in itself should reduce. And uh, that's why some kind of eye protection, either in the form of a goggle, an indirectly vented goggle, or a face shield, oh, is, is helpful in preventing those splash droplets from getting in to the areas because you are constantly being exposed to droplets from other people. I mean, there's somebody that may have sneezed four feet away from you on the bus or the subway, the metro, and got on, on the back of your shirt and you just go like this and then touch your face and sure enough, you get you get sick. So it, it's, it's, it's hard and there's a lot of serendipity involved in uh, in terms of getting sick. Now, I do want to show the mask, uh, how to put a, this is a different mask. And the one thing I have to say is the enemy of a good proper fit to a mask is a goatee. Wait, ready? <laughs> yeah. Oh, we got one. Wait, 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 w
Now, here are a couple of N95 masks, as uh, Ian had described. And uh, this is one that's popular. It's sort of a duckbill type. This is uh, an N95 that's made by 3M, very popular also. And this one is one of, one of the ones I like most. Basically, I, I'm, I'm hoping you can see this. It has two bands. Do you see the bands? Yep. The you see them. Yep. And basically, you have an area here where you have... Wait, let me set it up for you first. Yeah, she's going... Okay. She's. I'm the kind of guy that <laughs> needs constant help from my caregiver. All right. Thank you. Right. <laughs> All right. So what you want to do when you place this on, as you, as you can see, um, what you want to do is you... What? <laughs> this is not... I, I, we do we do a weekly we podcast. Do we, we do a weekly <laughs> we do a weekly podcast ourselves, and she spends half person. of the time gesticulating wildly. Is the demonstration person? I'm going to demonstrate here. This is the top. Okay, basically, you're supposed to hold it like this, place it on your face, and then you take this. You take the upper. Upper strip, and you put it over the top of your head, over the crown of your head. Okay? Then you're supposed to find the lower band, which I actually have to look for. Here, you see it? Oh, there it is. Okay. And you do this. Still trying. Basically, you're trying to keep your hand, your, your hand on this mask. Yeah. So you put that here. This is not working too well because I'm wearing this, of course. All right. And then you... Stretch it, one over your chin, one over your nose. Now, this is the fit test. This is what I actually wanted you to know. And that is with both hands, you apply pressure from starting at the bridge of your nose, and you mold this to your face. And you mold it to your face as best you can. And you want to make sure that the bottom of your chin is covered. You want to make sure that the bridge of your nose is covered. Now, then what you do, without applying pressure, you're holding, you put your hands in front, you just lightly hold the mask, then you <gasps> breathe in sharply. And if there's a good fit, usually there's a little bit of an indentation that occurs in the mask. Then you breathe out sharply, <sighs> and you're feeling if there is any air coming out here or on the side of the mask. And if you haven't done that, if you haven't done that, then what happens is that you can have uh, particulates that can come in through the mask itself. And so what you want to have the best protection, you want to have a mask that has a proper fit, and you want to have something that will protect your eyes. And so this would be an acceptable way to, to go, um, and of course... If I didn't have these ear headphones on, this would look a lot uh, smoother. But basically, <laughs> this, is, this is sorry about that. This is the way that I think that you would protect yourself. Now, your coveralls would have a hood. And by the way, oh, removing this, basically, what you do is you remove the uh, the back. The funny thing about this, okay. You move the bottom one first. The bottom one should have been over the nape of my neck. Oh, should have been in the nape, and that's what you remove first. And then 
and that, and you allow that to fall like this, and and then without touching the mask itself, if you can. I should not. I shouldn't have done this with the uh, headphones on. I'm sorry. But let's say I had already done this. Then what you're doing is you are trying to grasp the mask in such a fashion that you're not touching the front. Have you ever seen? Have you ever seen those shows where the doctor, you know, has just came out of surgery or or came out of the ER and his mask is here? just hanging from ties. Well, guess what? Totally contaminated. So he just contaminated the whole front of his body by doing that. So that was absolutely the wrong thing to do. Uh, again, I'm sorry that that, I have to figure out a way to, by the way, I, I don't know, I usually don't use headphones. Do you hear me when I don't have the headphones on? Yeah, yep. yeah, we do. Yep. Oh, you do? Yeah. Yep. Yep. Oh. <laughs> yeah, we just, so I use the headphones. <laughs> <laughs> we we really enjoyed the visual demonstration, though. That was great. It was great. That was good, though. We just uh, use the headphones to prevent the echo. That's all. Yeah. Oh my gosh. <laughs> all right. Well, anyhow, that was an absolutely inept presentation of how to actually put a mask on. However, I would like you to go on my YouTube channel, Doctor Bones Nurse Amy, Dr. Bones Nurse Amy, and go to face masks part one and part two, and you can see me actually do it in a manner that makes sense. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. Yeah, it's, it's a great video. I've watched them. It's uh, quite in informational, so it's, it's <laughs> worth checking out. Okay. Well, well. so where are we now? I forget. I'm, a I'm answering questions. Yeah. Pretty much. So. We've got actually a, a good one right now from uh, Adrian Finley. And uh, our first question that she had for us was, uh, how accurate do you feel the numbers coming out of China are? Like the chatter is indicating that the Chinese government is reporting less honest numbers of cases and or deaths. I um, believe that there are at least 20,000 more cases than are being reported. Uh, I believe the deaths are, the deaths currently are relatively accurate. The deaths in the first couple of weeks were totally inaccurate because they were calling people viral pneumonia without any particular tests being done on them. They're just assuming these people were dying of, of the old man's friend, basically the pneumonia that occurs at the, in, in older people at the, towards the end of their life that ends their suffering. <laughs> That's why they call it the old man's friend. So then, and over there, they actually don't make too big a deal about that. And the paperwork obviously is not something that is as important to them. So if, if there's something looks like just a pneumonia for them for quite a period of time, they were not really trying to figure out why this was happening. It was just when numbers started piling up that they became, became concerned. So the numbers that you have, probably more accurate now than they were, but always, I, I believe there are at least 20,000 more cases that then have been reported and certainly several hundred more deaths. Do you think they're just trying to uh, uh, avoid the uh, the panic or some uh, flashback from overseas because of that, or just, uh, just a uh, latency with the uh, delay of testing kits and stuff? Wendy, I, I, I think all of those things are factors. Uh, I believe that 
if you have a population of one point whatever billion, I think uh, it's probably a wise thing to try to not uh, to inculcate panic in people. However, I think people have a right to know, and the fact that they held this close to the vests for so long, uh, I think uh, cost some people their lives. I'm wondering, though, how many uh, people could be contagious, could have the virus, and they're just not reporting to the hospital, thinking that it might just be a flu or pneumonia or something like that, right? The uh, Wuhan is a ghost town, you would think, for a, ta- a city that has 11 million people that live in it, uh, the streets are empty. And so I believe people are at home. I believe that they're not wanting to present to a doctor. And that actually, the odds are in their favor that they will recover from it. Uh, there's um, theoretically this particular coronavirus uh, in 80% of the cases just gives you mild flu-like symptoms or uh, like a like a severe cold and you get better in a week or 10 days. And the bad thing is that one in five people, one in five actually go on to have a much worse situation where the cells lining the lungs are damaged or infected and and are damaged causing breathing difficulties and pneumonia, respiratory failure, and after that organ failure uh, ensues. Uh, So what's happening is the high percentage of people that are getting pretty sick is straining the infrastructure, the medical infrastructure. Now, these guys, if they can put, they put up a hospital for a thousand people in a week. Now, of course, my opinion is that was four walls and, you know, a thousand cots that were put in the building for the most part. But, uh, you know, they, they can, they are trying to contain it by having hospitals and they build them pretty quickly. In Atlanta, near where my father-in-law lives, there are, are huge buildings that are completely empty There's, that are advertised as office space. They are at least 100,000 square feet each, and there are at least a dozen of them. And I think that since they're near the CDC, that they're probably somewhere that they would probably make similar hospitals to what the Chinese did if there was such an outbreak in this country. Yeah, I think I got the uh, impression of underreporting as well when they, you know, at the time they only had like 900 cases advertised and they immediately went to work building this giant hospital. It seemed the, the reaction was not commensurate with the actual numbers. Yeah. Call it right. a bit so of a clue. The, thing was, the, the, the yeah. response was commensurate with the actual numbers. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but not the numbers no, that were reported. <laughs> and I guess if you don't show up to the hospital, you're not counted as a number either, right? So if you just suffer, you know. Well, that's one thing that I, I've read as well um, from somebody who was working out of Hong Kong. They were saying that some of the some of the people in Wuhan were um, showed video um, that was spreading on WeChat through the Chinese social media that was showing hospitals in in Wuhan that were lined with uh, bodies uh, yeah, in the hallways. Um, so, you know, to myself, if I'm sick and I've got flu-like symptoms, am I going to go to a hospital? There's a bunch of dead people lining the halls I, I i don't i don't think so right but again this is speculation this is what we're seeing out of social media media in china um these things get shut down pretty quickly as well so uh but that could be why people are hesitant to go to hospital as well yeah. Yeah. we actually also had a question from Denob there uh, asking about uh, rumors of a um uh, oh, hey, potential vaccine in the works i guess yes and- there is a, well they want to have a 
they want to have a, a vaccine, but it's going to take a while, I think, before they have a vaccine. There's all sorts of different levels of evaluation of, of uh, possible vaccines. So that's going to take, take a while. Now, treatment for this coronavirus, uh, just this morning, if you asked me that question, I would say just symptomatic treatment that you would do for whatever symptoms people have. You would give them acetaminophen, for example, or maybe ibuprofen for uh, fever. You would give them, if they have nasal nasal congestion, you would give them a decongestant, a cough suppressant if they, although I'm not a big fan of that in general, uh, if, if it's severe, a severe cough. But in Thailand, interestingly enough, there are two doctors that say that the, the claim that they made a 70-year-old woman, 70-year-old woman, improve greatly over the course of 48 hours by mixing Oseltamivir, uh, or Tamiflu in this country, and two unpronounceable HIV drugs, drugs that are given to people that have human immunodeficiency uh, virus, in a cocktail in which they made, they over, they put more uh, or a higher dose of the aseltamivir than normally the normal normally people would take for influenza and they gave these two uh, HIV drugs and mixed them together into a cocktail gave them to a 7-year-old woman who apparently was positive for the virus for 10 days and in 48 hours after beginning the, this cocktail was negative for the virus and so that gives us some hope that there may be somewhere uh, a, a treatment that may be effective in, uh, in helping that. This is, it's not anecdotal because it actually, it actually is considered to be, they're considered to be people that are, uh, have a good, decent reputation in their own countries. But the interesting thing to me is why, is, why would an HIV drug and maybe a influenza drug be helpful for these people unless there is genomic contribution from these kinds of viruses in the in the genome of this coronavirus what i'm trying to say is that and and this is purely a conspiracy theory that is you know has no hard evidence but the only biosafety for level four lab in the entire country of China is in Wuhan. And I was wondering, could it be that this was some kind of weird accidental release of a uh, weaponized virus into the population? Hmm. That's, that's the question. Now, I mean, that that is right now, I have absolutely no hard evidence of that. It, I discount it as a conspiracy theory. But why would it HIV if you if you wanted to make a really bad virus, you would want to combine the influenza with HIV with coronavirus. And you would have a hell of a virus. And yeah. the fact that the medicines for that actually helped this lady. Uh, it, it's interesting. It's food for thought, but nothing yeah. nothing that scientifically uh, has a scientific basis. Oh, it is interesting. 
we do have a question here in the live chat from uh, Terry Blackmore. Uh, he says, first off, thanks for the information. And uh, considering uh, if we wore a mask and gloves, what methods would average folks use to uh, decontaminate ourselves after returning from an area we feel may have been exposed or exposed us to this? I have a, I have a list of some common, uh, common errors of reasons why you would contaminate yourself. And the first one is that if you looked at people gowning up and uh, during the Ebola epidemic to, to give care to, uh, victims of the Ebola epidemic, they never did that alone. They were always watched to make sure that what they were doing, placing on, placing uh, gowns on, donning and doffing gowns was always done with somebody else watching because there are lots of ways that you can make a mistake and wind up contaminating yourself. And that's exactly what happened to those two nurses in Dallas with the uh, Liberian Ebola patient when he showed up in Dallas. So things that are important is number one, a poorly fitted mask. And I showed you a little bit of poor, I, I showed you very poorly how you would do a proper fit test. Don't forget to look at the, the uh, video. Um, not using enough hand sanitizer. Now this is something, that I that is a pet peeve of mine. You see this? People seem to think that beep that this is the amount of <laughs> hand sanitizer you should use. You should be using that amount. Oop. It's not the time to be skimpy. Right. Nope. Exactly. You should you need to be able to cover yourself completely. And if you're using soap and water, you need to use it for at least 20 seconds. Just uh, everybody knows sing happy birthday the happy birthday song twice in a row and there and, and that that's the amount of time you need to be washing your hands so that's that's very important not protecting your eyes big issue you mentioned mask and gloves uh it's not just mask and gloves it's mask and gloves in some form of eye protection so that's something that i think is super super important i think people don't realize that they, they just don't protect their eyes well, and also not realizing, I touched on this a little bit, that other surfaces other than your face are going to be contaminated that end up because you touch your face contaminating you. And that could be anything from your clothes, your pants, your shirt, your shoes. When you take off your, sh when you take off your shoes, you could actually have virus on your shoes. Um, work surfaces, counter, work counters, kitchen counters, things like that, food. You know, all of these things are possible nidises of infection. So that's something. So these are just some of the common mistakes that I see that would cause you to make an error. And I think the main, the main one is just not having enough of the appropriate type of protection. So things that I want you to have, I, uh, if you, well, first off, you have to determine the level of concern that you have for this virus. Yeah, everything that I write about assumes that something has happened and some disaster has taken away modern medicine for the long run. And that's, that's, what, that's what I talk about. And so in many circumstances, well, you know, you might not expect or may not think that there's going to be some long-term event. And if, 
there's some kind of long-term event, well, the medicines that you have are, and the various kinds of uh, pandemic items, well, you, know, you may expend all of them just simply because you believe that there is some kind of long-term event that's going to happen that's going to expend it, and that's all you're going to have. So things that you, if you really believe that there could be something that can happen, that you need special uh, equipment, you want to wear coveralls with sh both shoe covers and head uh, head covers as well. I have one other thing that is important. Most coveralls have booties. Most coveralls have booties, but that's not enough protection. The coverall booty is not protection. You need actually an, an actual boot like this. So you would need to have this covering your, the, the bottom part of your leg to have good protection. And I actually have a five-gallon bucket that I would have a uh, chlorine solution in that I would take, when I take my boots off, they would go straight into that chlorine solution. So these are basically rubber boots or vinyl boots, but that's the kind of protection that you need for even, even for your feet. So that's some of the stuff I want you to have. I want you to have mask, goggles, uh, watch I have gloves. Now remember there's an epidemic of latex allergy in uh, our country. I don't know if in Canada that's an issue, but uh, is, yeah. if that is an issue, then you should go get nitrile gloves or a number of different gloves. Um, I have uh, on our pandemic kits that we have on our website, uh, I have gloves that have a very long wrist. They're 12 inches basically. And the reason why that's important is when you have a coverall on, and you have gloves on, what happens is while you're doing work, there may be that defect where you actually can see the wrist because you stretched or did something like that. So whenever you put a coverall on, what you need to do is you need to raise your hand over your head and see if your wrist remains covered by the glove. If it doesn't, then you need to have you need to reassess the way you're putting on your your equipment, or you need to have equipment uh, gloves that have a longer a longer wrist. Um, aprons very good, good to have. Um, hand sanitizers I mentioned, uh, alcohol and BZK. These are good wipes to to have. Um, biohazard bags. When I when I decontent when I take off my items, when I doff my items, I actually stand in a biohazard bag. And so as I am taking things off, they're dropped either into a five gallon bucket or into a into the biohazard bag. Let me see where I'm trying to So unfortunately you can't I can't show you this, but basically as I'm taking my coverall off, it's ending up in a bio, in a big biohazard bag. And so that's, I think, one way that, that uh, you can more effectively make sure you don't decontaminate. Uh, chlorine bleach, I think, is, is a perfectly fine way to uh, decontaminate uh, uh, or disinfect work surfaces. Soap and water, also good. Remember, uh, soap, soap and water, if there's anything, if you're physically dirty, hand sanitizer doesn't cut it. You have to have soap and water. And so it, it that that's important. If you have you can see dirt, 
soap and water, not hand sanitizer. And of course, things that you would need would be a thermometer, of course, to monitor uh, fever and your, your general medical supplies. And one other thing, a whistle or some other kind of noisemaker, because you as a caregiver, you're not going to be able to be in the sick room 24 hours a day. And so you need to have some way for your sick patients in your epidemic room, in your sick room or your, your hospital tent to know that they need you. And that helps give them confidence that, uh, you know, that you're, you're there to help them. And uh, well, I, think, I think that kind of mental confidence, uh, you know, helps them recover. That's a great point. Yeah. Uh, that's really we've good. got another question here in the live chat, just in regards to all the equipment and everything that uh, you've been talking about from a uh, Fraser. Uh, he says, is there any kind of certification level uh, for some of these items that you've been talking about, uh, like a symbol or something that would let somebody know that it's a legitimate item? Uh, I'd hate to be purchasing something on say uh, Amazon yeah. and have it not actually be functional. Yes. Uh, look here and you'll see, the letters N-I-O-S-H. It's uh, uh, basically National, uh, National uh, Institute, Institute of, of Occupational Safety and Health, right? I think is yep. what, what that stands for. And so you'll see this N95 has it. And this N95 also has it. So that's what you're looking for. You want all of your items really to have that, although your rubber boots, I think, you know, rubber boots are rubber boots, but uh, your coveralls, uh, all the other items that we have are NIOSH approved. Oh, she's going to show a coverall. Do you want it? <laughs> okay. Here you go, babe. This is a typical coverall. Your coverall needs to have a hood. Now, the hood can be separate. The hood can be separate, or it can be attached this particular type Tyvek, this is a good brand. Tyvek brand coverall is very useful. Um, you, they're they're hard to find in medical supply stores now, but believe it or not, some Home Depots will actually have it or uh, Lowe's. I'm not sure what what is the name of your. We you have know, Home Depot you, and Lowe's and oh, oh okay, yeah. Tire. Yeah. You'll find these there. You'll find these there, but the, you get the one that has the hood because that. That's really important. If you have the hood, think, imagine you have the hood on, you have the mask on, and you have the face shield or goggles on, then you've got pretty good protection. If you don't have a whole pile of uh, sets of coveralls, though, uh, based on the fact that the virus can't survive forever, um, is it possible to reuse some of those suits if you let them hang for a few days somewhere away? I would, I would wash them with a mild bleach solution if you're going to do that. Yeah, see, these are some of the things that you have to think about in a true knock you off the grid, you know, super flu kind of situation is you have to realize that everything that you have accumulated, regardless of who you are, even I will run out of medical supplies if the society ending event lasts long enough. And so for that reason, you have to go completely outside the conventional medical wisdom, which I do relatively off. I actually have an active medical license. I'd like to keep it. Uh, but, <laughs> but, but we have to think about what we would do when if we were down to our last few masks or our last few uh, coveralls. Well, I'd like to say that this was just a little experiment. I mean, if you think about it, yeah. we had a little test here. Right. Can they hear you? 
Yeah, they can. Yep. Yep, we can. Oh. <laughs> All right. <laughs> we had a, well, we sit had down, a, sit down here. We had me. a test of running out of supplies. Yes. I mean, just from a scare, let alone, you know, like a real. Yes, for, for a period of time, we we yeah. actually, we, we put together all sorts of medical kits and things like that. And we actually ran out of these things. Yeah, that's why this is an em- empty box. <laughs> Yep. So, so, so one just one more note on the on your your decontamination as you're cleaning your boots and you're doffing your your equipment. Make sure that you're doing that well away from your house, your the rest of your life, because uh, you want to keep all you want to keep that virus. It does have a bit of a half life. So set up your decon area, you know, yeah, well. to your property and and keep your and keep the keep it as far away from your your living quarters as possible. Uh, I would say that they also talk about that in, when, in my sick room articles that you'll find on, on the website. Uh, the important thing is that your sick room, if, it, you're, if it's going to be in your home, there should be an area well away from common areas. So nowhere, not where food is being prepared, not where um, you would expect traffic you know, kids running around, things like that. You need to have that person somewhere else. If you have a if you are on the road, if you have had to bug out, as they say, and you are all in tents, then you beforehand, before anything happens, you have to designate which is the hospital tent. Because if everybody just brings a tent and you decide that this tent is going to be the hospital tent, you have just evicted somebody. Mm-hmm. And what you're going to do is you're going to cause a great deal of resentment at a time when everybody has to pull together. So you need to have a dedicated hospital tent. Not even a bad idea to have dedicated bedding, dedicated eating utensils for, for the sick. If the event is that kind of event, is, is an infectious disease kind of event. You know. so What's funny idea. is, um, oh, sorry, you go ahead, Alan. I was going to say, not a bad idea to add a small tent to your, to your medical box in your, in, your evac bo- in your evac kit then. Completely agree. I was just going to say, um, you know, I work for emergency services for a fairly large Canadian city, and we've been ordering um, things like N95 masks so that we have more at the station. Um, whenever we respond to a medical call, it's it's uh, protocol to have an N95 mask and um, eye protection, all that kind of stuff, and we're actually unable to get them. So the, the supplies we have in the station now or what we have, um, I'm sure the government of Canada and obviously the U.S. government as well probably has stockpiles of these things, but um, they're not available to us right now as first uh, as frontline responders because um, all their stuff is ordered commercially through dis- distributors right so um, I mean we have other things we could do we can wear like a full SCBA and breathe breathe their own air and all that kind of stuff but it's not really a sustainable solution so just it's just kind of interesting to me that you know all the stores are sold out and frontline emergency workers are also not able to get this I, I can't speak for the hospitals in the area and all that kind of stuff I'm sure that they have more than adequate supplies but um, it just kind of caught, caught me off guard this week when I saw that. You have to remember that basically the government uh, or your national security uh, stock, stockpile, national stockpile uh, of medical items and things like that, those aren't meant to go to the citizens. Those are meant to maintain the continuity of the government. Not because they're evil people or anything like that, but because the society without a government is not not very uh, polite society, and so they want they they a lot of the equipment 
and a lot of the medical stuff that, that these stock national stockpiles have uh, really are not meant for you as individuals. And that's why I think it's so important for you to have your own uh, stockpile of medical supplies. And they say the beans and the bullets, I'm, I, I think it's the beans and the bandages. Mm-hmm. Yeah, great point. Mm-hmm. So, so with that note, actually, if we could circle back to the original part of the podcast, you mentioned the, uh, the under uh, availability of ICU beds and emergency, uh, I guess, hospital capacity. If uh, somebody, you know, ends up getting symptomatic and we've gotten to the point where, you know, most of these places are overwhelmed because of uh, caseload. Um, if you're symptomatic at that point, would you recommend just sheltering in place or just going to the hospital and hoping for the best? Or like, is this too much, too many variables involved? If you have, pre- if you have prepared, if you planned in, in advance, if you read mine or many, I'm sure many other excellent uh, authors have written articles on this, if you have the ability to put together a good sick room. Remember, if you go out in the midst of an epidemic situation into a hospital, you're going into the most crowded place probably in the entire city or the entire town. And this is a pretty strange thing coming from a a doctor, but nobody gets better in a hospital when it comes to an epidemic disease. Basically, what happens is you're going to be exposed again and again. Your family who brings you there is go- are going to be exposed. They could easily become sick themselves. So um, if, if you have confidence that your current medical infrastructure has taken a large-scale epidemic into account and has made, taken measures to protect you from inadvertent contamination, then great, you can go to the hospital, take your family member to the hospital. If not, I honestly believe that, and this is not paranoia, this is actually a, if you go to the CDC, this is actually a strategy. Social distancing is not considered to be a bad idea when there are community-wide outbreaks of very contagious diseases. Good to know. That's really interesting. Another thing too I was wondering is if you know if I'm showing symptoms, um, flu-like symptoms, and I go to the hospital, and it turns out I've got the seasonal flu, and then all of a sudden I contract the coronavirus on top of that. That's one thing to consider as well, right? Um, I mean, you're Absolutely not sure what you got. Right. Just because you have one virus doesn't mean you couldn't get another. Yeah. And and it doesn't matter how, although it's true that the elderly and infirm people like me uh, wind up getting the wind up getting the flu in worse than other people uh, healthy strong strapping lads like yourselves well you are just as likely to get the flu you may do better and, and come out of it better than I would but you're just as likely to get the flu as anyone else if if you don't have protection We've got another good uh, question here in the live chat. Um, could an asymptomatic carrier never manifest to full-blown case yet still infect others? Yes. Period. There we go. That was easy. That was yeah. easy. Yep. <laughs> and, that, and that is what the problem is with this. Uh, one of the main issues with this coronavirus is that people that are not symptomatic are giving viral loads to their loved ones. For example, or or to people that they're in close 
quarters with like in the cabin of a of a, of an airplane so these these are concerns and that's why at one point or another you know some of these travel bans are you know do make sense our daughter canceled her trip to japan Right. Our, our daughter was actually going to Japan in what, the a couple end of this months? month. And this, month, this month. I canceled, canceled the trip. And it was it's not unwise that she did that. So aside from avoiding exposure, is there anything we could do as an immuno booster or anything like that to get a, to, to get a jump on the on exposure? Well, I mean, there are a lot of things that you can do to protect yourself from getting sick. I mean, washing. I remember I mentioned washing your hands. Uh, and the question is, when... Do you have to wash your hands? I mean, if you look at this list here, that from the World Health Organization, there's probably no time where you're not washing your hands. I mean, you're washing your hands after you cough, after you cough, or after you sneeze, uh, when you're caring for the sick, before, during, and after you prepare food, before eating, after the use of the toilet. Please, uh, when, when hands. <laughs> When hands are visibly dirty, and uh, and after handling handling animals or animal waste, and honestly, after touching your face, and everybody inadvertently touches their face throughout the day. I, I take a look when that, next time you guys actually get together, just take a look at yourselves. You take for a half hour. Take a look at the other guys in your group. And just see how many times they touch their hands with their face with their hands. I want to mention one more time. Nobody thinks about it is when you go to the grocery store. Oh, yeah. You know, they've got these sani wipes, hand sanitizer wipes outside of the grocery store. So you can wipe down your cart handle and your hands. I carry mine around with me because I, we literally touch hundreds of items inside the grocery store. Sometimes looking at different expiration dates, right. it's the same item. But we might pick up five or six or seven of them. That somebody else Red, may have picked up to crackers, look at the ingredients. Exactly, exactly the same thing. Before. So by the time you go through a grocery store, if you're doing a good shopping, you can touch hundreds of items. Then you get to the counter. You know, now you're touching the checkout pad where you put your credit card, your mm -hmm. pin number. Goodness knows how many people have touched that finger pad before you did, and nobody ever wipes that thing down. So. That's why I keep my sandy ripe. Of course, by the time I get there, it's a little dry. <laughs> but I <laughs> well, talked to the grocery store and I said, please put a, a container of your hand sanitizer wipes by the checkout. I said, I've touched hundreds of items since I walked in here. I'm not so worried about my cart. I'm worried about right now after I've touched things that other people have touched. And they said, well, we can't really do that. We don't have enough money. And then somebody else said they were out of the Home Depot, said they were out of them when we walked in today to go shopping. So, I mean, this is a problem. We need to start carrying these things around with us. Did you show them the little hand sanitizers that we carry around? <laughs> yeah. We have two ounce I, hand sanitizers yeah. everywhere I, I, did the I could have done my own laundry with the <laughs> hand sanitizers. <laughs> that's another thing. People don't think about every time you go shopping, and whether it's Home Depot or the grocery store, but I would have to say especially the grocery store. You know, we're punishing people by having me Why? in the no, in front of the camera. You should be I'll in front smile of the camera. I'll smile for one second. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, you've ever seen somebody like try and like check out an apple to see if it's then they put it down or they, they shake a, a watermelon to see if they can feel the seeds and they put it back right. down. There's like who, the first section is ridiculous. Who hasn't done that? No. Yeah. Who hasn't done it? Took, took a look at yeah, an apple and saw that 
you know, I had a, a, a bruise or something and, and put it back. That's true. We've also had a couple of questions in the chat about uh, vitamin supplements. So vitamin C, vitamin D, zinc. Are there, is there anything we should be kind of I have no, on? I have no hard evidence with regards to coronavirus, but uh, there is evidence that vitamin C, uh, if taken regularly, will decrease the length of time that you're down with the cold. And so that, that that's that's one thing that uh, I do believe in natural products uh, that that can help. Uh, I think uh, antioxidants are very important, uh, and you should include them in, in your diet: berries, fruits, and vegetables, right. things your, like that. Your C's, C's, your D's. Right. Those, so, so those are important. Can get out in the sun. And right. Well, there you go. Getting out in the sun would be a, a good thing to do. And we've got another question here as well in regards to uh, is temperature a factor in the lifespan of uh, the coronavirus without a host? Interestingly enough, the virus doesn't, uh, and this was a surprise to me when I listened to uh, a lecture by a virologist on the subject. He actually says the virus actually likes cold weather. Damn well. I was surprised. I read the rationale. What was the rationale? The rationale is it doesn't like heat and it doesn't like humidity so when it's colder it's drier and so the virus can hang out in the air longer and get on to the next person uh, well i guess that's why flu season happens in the winter isn't it that's there you go um and then another uh question baby wipes uh, same effectiveness as the sandy wipes i'm gonna uh, guess the answer is no but baby wipes the same as uh, bzk would you say uh, it depends on if it has BZK in it. It depends on because there, on what, there are natural yes. baby wipes that are organic and full of you know essential oils and you know aloe and you know just really healthy for the baby and not necessarily going to kill germs. Not, so I would not necessarily not, antiseptic. I would definitely not um, rely on baby wipes. You got to read the labels, but I, however, would rely on things that do say you know kills See, viruses. Like this one. Yeah. You know, a label like chloride, uh, a label uh, like that. This is alconium chloride. Right. Usually come in a little purple package if in your first aid kits. Yes. Yeah. Now one thing, right? Now one thing that you need to know is that what happens when those things run out? Exactly. Yeah. Okay. And when those things run out, you have to have some other way that you can do this. Now, bleach is useful for six months to a year before it loses its potency. Pull shock? Uh, pool shock would be a granular, I don't know if you know anybody has a pool there, but there is something uh, that is called pool shock. And pool shock is this granular substance that is uh, uh, calcium hypochlorite. Household bleach is sodium hypochlorite, but it's close enough. You can make a chloride solution out of it. Basically, you would take a pint and put it in 12 gallons of water and that makes bleach. You're not putting that to using that to disinfect your water, or or but that does make bleach. Then you take that, and if you need a, a one to ten solution, you take one part of that and nine parts of water, and then you you can disinfect things with it. And uh, and so that's what you. That's would, what they actually used for the do. Ebola when they were doing the goggles, right? And when they were dropping the boots into the orange buckets. That's what the solution was inside of those orange buckets was the the 10% bleach. Right. Hmm. 
Actually, Hughes actually has a really good video on YouTube as well, doing the exact same thing with Pool Shock. So that's, that's unlimited good. supply for ten dollars. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Last time beach for ten bucks. Yeah, nice. you're a wise man. Awesome. I think that's all, all right. I have. Yeah, uh, we did just have one other question in regards to when you have all the equipment on. Uh, in regards to eating and drinking, that's obviously a no go, right? It's a no go. Um, in Temperate climates, you can last Sorry. a pretty good long time with all of your Sorry. stuff on. Oh, what's going Sorry. on? Um, <laughs> in a temperate climates, you can last a pretty good long time with all of your equipment on. Uh, I, I felt so bad for these guys during the Ebola epidemic because they could last maybe about 40 minutes before they would get seriously overheated uh, in West Africa. But... Uh, in, in temperate, and that would be the same problem here. And here, here I probably wouldn't be able to last more than an hour, you know, in the summer, uh, if I had to be, uh, you know, dressed up and all and all this, uh, all these items. But you guys, where you are, I think are in pretty good shape. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I was in uh, back in November. I was in a, um, it was a, an EPA level. Suit, so that's a full FCBA and essentially your Tyvek suit that you were showing there. And um, we were we were doing some some hazmat mitigation training, and within about half an hour, I was. I mean, it was only you know what sixty degrees or you know mid mid teens in in Canadian, mm -hmm. uh, but it was a, it was a reasonably temp temperate day, and by you know half an hour, and I was uh, I was sweating pretty good. It doesn't allow for a lot of evaporation. Right. What what did they have you doing while you were? Oh, that was um, they, we, did a, we were in a few different drills. It was sweeping and um, like uh, absorbing liquid material with a with a grain like with a granular uh, absorbent, and then sweeping it into a bucket and um, you know moving tools around and putting down absorbent socks. So it wasn't heavy duty work. We weren't lifting weights with it, but it was enough that we were generating heat, and there was nowhere for the heat to go. And we were wearing thirty-pound air bottles on the back. So, wow, that was heck of a day, huh? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I want to say one thing that you know that I I, I mentioned it once in a while, and uh, I mentioned it before on the show. But everything that I write about assumes that there's some crazy thing that has occurred that's really taken modern medicine away from you or made it. E inaccessible or unwise to access and in normal times please seek modern and standard medical care whenever and wherever it is available i mean you do not have a respirator uh, machine uh, or ventilator in in your home most likely and if uh, you have a family member that needs to be on a ventilator well you know you're going to have to take them to the hospital i would say that in times of trouble, it's probably unlikely that a lot of the people that need ventilators or to breathe for them uh, are going to last very long. But you know, I just wanted to make sure that I say that I I don't want people to uh, immediately decide that this doctor said nobody gets better in a hospital. Uh, I mean it in certain situations. Yeah. So when times are good, seek out the appropriate medical care in in your area. There you go. So, uh, does the panel have any other questions or anything else that we want to put forward? No, I think no. I'm, I'm good. All right. Well, great. Well, thank you. I want to thank you guys so much for uh, having me on and letting me talk to your audience. So we, 
Yeah, it's been our pleasure, uh, oh, Dr. Oh, Thank you very much for uh, for your information and, and sharing your knowledge with us. We, uh, we certainly uh, thank you for, for being able to come out and talk to us uh, this evening. It's been uh, great information. Happy to do it. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it. And with that, maybe we will move into the podcast challenge. All right. So for the challenge this week, we can uh, take some basic precautions. You can buy your or inventory your current supplies. Make sure you have enough uh, bleach, gloves, coveralls, goggles, and masks on hand. Maybe consider your pandemic-specific DEFCON triggers. And uh, hey, if you get the chance, get your hands on the Survival Medicine Handbook and read up on the quarantine and decontamination. We'll move into some uh, episode closing. So, go ahead, Eric. We've got uh, so for some more information, uh, you can visit uh, Doctor uh, Alton's YouTube. Uh, you check him out at uh, Doctor Bones and Nurse Amy. Uh, we've got a link as well for the uh, CDC. So some information there for you. I also threw in at the bottom there. I threw in a uh, real time, basically for lack of a better term, a war room that's uh, put together by John Hopkins University. It's basically an aggregator that comes up with all the caseload across the world, and it has neat little, you know, Doctor Evil style map on there that gives you uh, current. Uh, cases deaths everything else recoveries it's just nice to have up on your uh, your screensaver for like a better thing okay so we've got some upcoming events all right so i got the uh, podcaster charity shoot coming up uh, hosted by slam fire radio on july 4th 2020 in belmoral new brunswick that's the rest of goose gun club uh we do have the charity that now it's uh, this year's charity of choice is the rod harkwale memorial fund the fund is intended for the benefit of sick or injured children in our region. This includes expenses incurred by the families of sick or injured children for medical treatment, testing, equipment, or related travel expenses so they can receive the best treatment possible. So I threw the uh, link up there as well for the Memorial Fund. All right, and we've got the uh, annual preppers meet coming up uh, the second week of July in Desborough, Ontario. Uh, as always, it's going to be a good, uh, good weekend with a lot of like-minded people, a lot of good uh, instructors, a lot of good uh, courses and seminars to take. And, of course, some good times around the campfire telling all kinds of stories. So it was a good uh, good weekend, and I believe uh, tickets are going to be going on sale shortly. So uh, we'll get that information out to you as soon as uh, tickets are available. And Alan. Oh, wait, that's me. Um, emergency preparedness week, <laughs> which, of course, was I was not prepared for. Coming up the week of May 3rd to 9th. Sorry, I got, uh, got kind of distracted by that. Um, uh, that Johns Hopkins. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty addictive, isn't it? Um, so emergency preparedness week uh, focuses on um, on being being able to be self sufficient for seventy two hours, having a plan to get out. Uh, there will be much more to come as we get closer to that, but that will be uh, we'll be doing at least one episode about that. And as well, we've got TACCOM Canada 2020 coming on September 11th to 13th. Uh, the Canadian Program Podcasters Network will be in attendance at TACCOM 2020, as well as your favorite podcasters will be on hand throughout the show. So make sure you drop by the booth uh, to meet your favorite and pick up your favorite, sorry, and pick up some swag. You can see the details in the show notes there. We've also got a link on uh, our website at uh, prepperpodcast.ca. And if you uh, follow that link through there, we get a little bit of... Uh, some donation back, and I believe we're going to be donating that off to charity. So, uh, if you can follow that link, that'd be great. And, and if, uh, you have, have if you have an idea of the charity that we should be donating that to, please let us know because we'd love to hear it. Um, I have a shout out uh, to uh, Rogue Preparedness on Instagram. They she puts out some great 
content about uh, she's always got EDC gear going, uh, spends a lot of time outdoors with her family. Uh, they're really well prepared. She also just started a podcast, which I've, uh, I've listened to a couple of episodes. Well worth a listen. Um, so yeah, go, uh, go check them out. Uh, Rogue Preparedness on Instagram. All right. I just got a quick shout out to all the uh, various Canadian prepper groups on uh, Facebook and all the uh, different chat platforms that I'm on. Uh, for the most part, uh, everyone's been coming together and sharing all kinds of good advice uh, on the coronavirus and uh, shutting down all those who are spreading uh, fake alarmist and inaccurate information as well. So it's been uh, it's been really great to see the community kind of come together, um, share information and, and not go down that alarmist uh, path where everybody's freaking out, sharing all kinds of incorrect information. It's been shut down pretty quickly and uh, only the, uh, the good accurate stuff's been, uh, been getting through. So it's been, uh, it's been good to see. That is nice. All right. I've got one for uh, Dr. Alton, of course. Uh, you know, it's kind of like meeting one of your favorite rock stars. So it's uh, been a pleasure <laughs> having you on board. Uh, yeah. A lot of good information there for sure. Yeah. Well, thank yeah, you. Thank I, you. Appreciate, I, I appreciate it. And as far as iTunes reviews go, we are at uh, 44 five stars. We're at uh, three four stars, uh, two three stars, and we've still got that one little guy at one star keeping us honest. <laughs> You'll get over it one day. Uh, one day. <laughs> I don't think you will. It's, it's only been 53 episodes, right? So <laughs> some time. I'll get over it eventually. <laughs> So uh, with that, I'll bring episode number 53 of the Canadian Prepper podcast to an end. Uh, you can find the podcast on iTunes, Podbean, Stitcher now, Spotify, or your favorite f- podcast app. Uh, please help us out. Take a few minutes. You can submit a review. Uh, it helps other people find us. We do record these shows live on Facebook and YouTube. If you want an early peek at the show, please subscribe to the YouTube channel, Canadian Prepper Podcast, and click the notifications tab. That'll give you an alert when we're going live. We can also be found on our Facebook page, the Canadian Prepper Podcast. Uh, you can find me directly on Instagram at PPSWO, or as of earlier today by email, alan at prepperpodcast.ca. Hey, Dr. Elton, where can everybody find you? Uh, well, you can check out our website is doomandbloom.net. Our uh, entire line of medical kits and supplies, including pandemic supplies, are at store.doomandbloom.net. Our YouTube channel is DR Bones Nurse Amy YouTube channel. Our Facebook group, uh, feel free to join our 6,000 uh, strong uh, wow. uh, survival medicine group. It's called Survival Medicine, Dr. Bones Nurse Amy. Um, we have... Uh, let me see what oh and and our our podcast is called the survival medicine podcast and that is on blog talk radio although you can find it on a lot of other platforms as well yeah it's available on iTunes for sure uh as far as myself you can reach ian directly by emailing me now at ian at predperpodcast.ca or the island retreat at gmail.com uh you can also find me uh on mondays on king and patriot podcast also available on itunes and youtube there you can find us discussing more government waste, squirreling off on the odd firearms-related banter, and exposing the daily loss of freedoms we're facing. Every once in a while, I'd like you to be on an even <laughs> firearms banter. It's always odd. <laughs> That's true. It's true. And for myself, I can be reached now at Hughes at PrepperPostcast.ca. That's H-U-G-U-E-S or HFXPrepper at gmail.com. And I also have my own YouTube channel. Just search for HFXPrepper. All right. For myself, uh, please check out Rapid Survival at RapidSurvival.com. Uh, you can get me there on the live chat uh, while you're buying some prepper gear. Uh, you can also email me at feedback at prepperpodcast.ca. Uh, thanks for joining us. You can tune in for the next episode. We're going to be discussing hard alcohol production. So until next time, uh, be prepared, stay safe, and keep learning. Keep learning.